Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Michelle Silent Tucker is the founder and CEO of Silent Tucker Incorporated. She holds the Mergers and Acquisitions Master's Intermediary title, as well as Certified Mergers and Acquisitions Professional and Certified Senior Business Analyst. Michelle also owns many other businesses in several different industries. As a 20-year veteran in the M&A industry, she is regarded as the leading authority on buying, selling, fixing, and growing businesses. Her and her firm have sold over 1,000 businesses in almost every vertical and have a remarkable track record of success. Michelle, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I know we're going to talk about all that. We're going to talk about your new book. Uh, a lot of exciting stuff. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Corey, for having me on. Well, okay, great. So before we get to all that, you're welcome. It's great to have you here. Before we get to all that, I want to take you back to when you were a little girl growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is an M&A professional wasn't it at that age, but you tell me. No, I never, I never thought I would be an M&A professional. <laughs> I never thought I would sell companies. I did, however, at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten. I knew I wasn't your normal child, your average child. Number one, I never ever played with toys. I wasn't interested in toys. I wasn't interested in dolls. I was. I thought it was all a colossal waste of time. So I would walk around with a notebook, and every time we went to the bank, to the grocery store, to the restaurant. I would just walk up to strangers and start asking them questions about entrepreneurship. I would be like, hi, my name is Michelle. What's your name? What do you do? <laughs> How did you get into it? <laughs> and I would just write notes down. And my mom always thought I was going to be Barbara Walters, the next reporter. But I was just so passionate and curious, curious. I was like a kid in the candy store. And I still am like a kid in the candy store. And I was just so passionate about entrepreneurship and how people get started. You know, that's really, I told my mom back then, I said, I will never get a job, mom. And she said, never say never. I said, never. <laughs> and so I started small businesses, you know, pretty young in life. I did end up getting a job. I actually went to work at Xerox because they recruited me uh, with a pretty hefty six-figure salary package and bonuses. And within six months, you know, they promoted me to regional vice president over the southern region overseeing 100, 150 sales reps. And I realized right then, I'm like, oh my God, I hate this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like selling. I like developing relationships that last a lifetime. I love, you know, my, a lot of my clients are my best friends now. And I like solving problems. When you're in corporate management at a Fortune 500 company, you're just having meetings to schedule more meetings, to have follow-up meetings. <laughs> and there's a bunch of meetings, paperwork, and you can't ever get anything done. It's so much red tape. So I ended up leaving Xerox and starting my own franchise development, franchise consulting, and um, franchise sales company. 
And then so many buyers kept coming to me and saying, look, I want an existing business. Or I want you to sell my business. I'm like, well, that's not what I do. <laughs> I do franchise sales, franchise development. I had equity in, in different franchise or businesses as well. So not only did I get paid very well, get high commissions, but I also had equity. And then I kept hearing this and over and over again. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should listen to the universe. <laughs> and that's when I transitioned into M&A about 22 years ago. Uh, it's a great story. And I, and I love these early, you know, I, it resonates so much with me because I was the same kind of kid. You know, I mean, in addition to the usual paper routes and shoveling snow and mowing lawns, when I, by the time I was 15, I had a business with, let's call them contractors because I was not withholding taxes <laughs> for employees. <laughs> <laughs> I had my friends delivering flyers door to door. I got my own accounts. I used to work with somebody doing that. So I've been running businesses, you know, uh, since I was a kid as well. So I totally identify. Um so uh, one other question, looking back, and then we'll talk a little, little bit more about what you're doing now. What was your first deal of any type that you can remember? It could be something small when you were a kid or something early in your career, whatever comes to mind. Um, probably one of the first deals. I mean, there's so many deals in my franchise development, franchise sales career. When I transitioned to M&A, it was completely different <laughs> than selling franchises. And there's a lot more moving parts. There's a lot more things you have to deal with because... When, you, when you're selling franchises, the franchisor is also involved in a lot of those moving parts. When you're selling businesses, it's you. It's you, you're the attorney and the, and the CPA. And we're the glue that holds it all together. But one of my first deals was a flower shop, a small flower shop in New Orleans. I think it was my very first deal. Wow. And, you know, I did all the work. I did everything. I went to buy and sell it together. It was they owned the, real, the seller owned the real estate. But the seller was in Paris on vacation. And the, the buyers wanted to close, close, close. And the seller said, yeah, well, okay, we're closing. We'll, we'll do a virtual close. And that was, that was a long time ago. That was 2000, 2001. And I asked the attorney, I said, look, we can't close without a lease. He goes, sure, you can close without a lease. I go, no, you can't. He goes, yes, you can. Because I sold franchises. I know you have to have a lease. And he said, yeah, we can. And he used a name for you. So we call it this. And I said, okay, you sure? And he goes, I'm the attorney. I know. So we get to the closing. And again, the buyer and seller were conferencing in. I think they have power of attorney there. And we go through all the closing docs. Everything gets signed. And then they're like, well, where's the lease? And I said, well, we don't have the lease because they're in Paris. And the attorney spoke up and said, you can't close without a lease. And I go, wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> he's throwing me under the bus in front of everybody. Everybody's mad at me now. And he said, you can't close that lease. I said, but that's not what you told me. You told me I didn't use this talk to me. He goes, no, that's not what I said. You can't close that lease. I said, you know, we didn't have a lease then. Why, did, why, why is this closing scheduled? And so he's arguing with me, throwing me under the bus. Everybody's upset with me now. And so I'm the one to have to put the pieces back together again. So what did I learn from that? You're an attorney, so I'm not going to say anything negative. <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's okay. laughs> I'm just gonna say, get other people's opinions, do your due diligence, research it on your own, and don't go in trusting somebody else who might not even care about your best interest. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Listen, I, Michelle, I, I actually look at these issues that people have with other attorneys as a competitive advantage. So I don't get upset when people, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I, he, oh my God, he's like, the worst case. Like anything else, there's good, there's good people in certain professions and people who are, huh. you know. And, and Just like my profession, there's good M&A advisors and there's really bad ones. Well, that's right. That's right. And especially when you're talking about getting deals done, 
you know, there is, uh, there is something about being a deal maker that, you know, is, is, is a specific skill that, uh, you know, sometimes professionals all across the board, whether they're attorneys or whatever, or even brokers and, and investment professionals. And I mean, across the board, there are people that are in the profession that aren't good at it. So that's, you know, and then that's why those of us who are, I think, you know, good do why you've done so well, I'm sure, because it's competitive advantage for you as well, right? So yeah. what you do. I learned from that deal. Never trust anybody without doing my own research and my own due diligence. The deal ended up closing, but they never forgave me. They thought it was all my fault. Yeah. And and that really bothered me more than anything because you know, I stake my reputation on win-win situations, created win-win for buyers and sellers and making sure everybody's happy, not, you know, closing a deal and everybody mad at me. I would rather not close a deal. <laughs> That's I, get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. So, so now that was 21 years ago or so, and now you've got, you know, a couple of decades of, uh, of, of more experience in, and not only that, but, you know, you've done, according to your bio, you've done deals. I mean, there's not any particular vertical. I mean, you have a pretty broad experience, right? Yeah, we're industry agnostic. We do. We don't sell flower shops anymore. <laughs> we we typically we specify um, really in businesses two million dollars up in purchase price, so a million dollars up in EBITDA. Yep. Um, we'll work with smaller companies. We'll work with them on what we call our road to exit rich program, and yep. that's a that's a twelve month program where we get the business ready for sale. Let's talk about that. And that's really. I mean, you're on your fourth book now, right? Um, yeah, so I wrote Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth. I wrote Exit Rich. I wrote another book that hasn't been out yet called um, How to Acquire Wealth Through Acquisitions. And then I wrote Contributing Chapter in Thinking Grow Rich. And we have another Exit Rich version coming out called, Billion, called Million Dollar, Billion Dollar Exits. Love it. Love it. All right. So let's let's talk about the Exit Rich book, right? Um, I, I really want to hear about that. I mean, listen, uh, something that by the time your episode ends, I think we're going to be somewhere around 180 episodes into this thing. Um, you know, if people haven't generally understood that one of the premises of this podcast is that there's opportunities for any kind of business to do deals, not only M&A, we, we cover more than M&A in this, you know, joint ventures, strategic alliances, licensing deals, you name it. But certainly M&A is a big part of, uh, of the opportunity of businesses to grow and create enterprise value. Um, and to prepare themselves, right? To I mean, listen. Very often, businesses are the biggest asset that any 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 entrepreneur or any founder, right, or, or founding group owns. But as we were talking in in the pre-call, right, most businesses aren't really saleable, or at any you know, and, or they think they're going to sell. And you know, there's a joke that uh, that we say sometimes, a lot of times, that most you know, uh, first of all, many many businesses think their buyers are really sellers, and then you know, and then many. Many people who think they can sell actually can't sell or can't sell for close to what uh, you know they, they think they value that. Let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit and what your work does because you do whether it's uh, you know the lessons people get from your book or the, on the programs you have help people to really prepare to be sold at you know at, at, at appropriate prices. So how do you do that? Tell tell us about some of the things that. Yeah, of course. So um, Steve Forbes endorsed Exit Rich, and Steve Forbes says. 80% of businesses on the market will never sell. M&A source says 90% of businesses on the market will never sell. And the ones that do sell certainly do not sell for the desired price tag because they haven't built a sellable business for their desired price tag. So let's talk about that. One of the number one reasons why businesses don't sell is because business owners, they're so busy working in their business, not on it, 
They don't think about selling until they're exhausted, until they're burned out, until they're sick of employees. <laughs> it's one of the biggest reasons business owners sell. You know, they're tired of the fight. I mean, being an entrepreneur is a fight. It's a constant fight every day. We're always putting out fires, always handling battles in our business. And then they can be forced into selling because of partners' um, disputes, divorce. You know, it's a 51% divorce rate in our country. It's probably even more now after the pandemic. And death, unfortunately, death. And then a lot of business owners have decided to sell because this pandemic and their business has really took a nosedive and is not doing well. So this is catastrophic. These are catastrophic events we're talking about. You should never, ever sell your business during a catastrophic event. Your business is trending downward. Your business is not doing good. You're probably not making much money. The only buyers that are going to be interested in your business is going to be turnaround specialists. They want to buy your business for no money down. They want to leverage your assets. Or I call them con artists. There's a lot of con artists and scammers that have come out of the woodwork since this pandemic. I mean, they were there before, but they're even more prevalent now. And they think that they can buy businesses with nothing down. I mean, I just talked to a gentleman who has a cosmetic manufacturing company. He said, yeah, this buyer came in and offered me 10% of my of his new company, Nuco company. And he'll take 10% of his company, but he still has to run his business and everything. He's not going to inject any capital. And the, the current owner doesn't get a salary. And I said, wait a minute. You get 10% of what? He said, the new company. I said, so you get 10% of nothing. <laughs> and there's all kinds of deals like this right now where sellers are so exhausted that they don't know what to do. And I told this guy, I said, look, you're not taking that deal. I just spoke to him. He heard me on a podcast. And I said, you're not taking that deal because that deal doesn't help your situation at all. I said, we're going to help get your business back on track. And this is how we're going to do it. So the bottom line is that business owners really have to start planning their exit from day one of starting or buying a business. Now, if you've been in business 10, 15, 20 years, and you're listening to this, and say, look, lady, I've been in business 20 years. So what? You got to start somewhere, right? So what? You got to start somewhere. Because if you don't do this, you're going to end up exiting poor. You're going to end up selling for pennies on the dollar. You're going to end up closing your business or even worse, you're going to end up following bankruptcy. And small business is a backbone of our economy. We have 30.2 uh, million businesses employing over half the U.S. workforce. If we lose small business, what do we lose? We lose jobs and we lose spending power. And then guess what? More small businesses close. And it's a trickle-down effect. So the first and foremost thing that we work with our clients on, Corey, is really identifying the GPS exit model because that's when business owners get in trouble. They call me up one day and say, hey, Michelle, I want to sell my business. I can't take this anymore. And I always ask them, what are your expectations? Like, well, you know, Michelle, I'm not an expert in this. You are. You're going to do the valuation. I said, yes, but you have a desired price in mind. And then they'll tell me crazy numbers like, oh, I want 20 million. How do you come up with 20 million? And they're like, oh, well, the sweat equity all the baseball games I miss with my kids, all the gymnastics moves I miss, you know, all the sweat equity. Plus, I need $20 million to retire on. And a business might be worth a million. So buyers don't give about what you need to retire on. They don't care about your sweat equity. How many years you put in, how many things you suffered. That is nothing. They don't care that you haven't taken a vacation in nine years. They don't care. So they care about what the value brings to them. So if you want to sell a $20 million company, 
You got to build a $20 million company. You can't just wake up one day and say, I want to sell. So the GPS exit model, Corey, is really where we start. So the GPS exit model, when you want to drive somewhere in California, New York, I'm actually from Long Beach, California. What do you do? You pull out your phone. You go to what? Google Maps, any of those apps, right? What do you yeah. plug in? What do you plug in? Destination. What happens if you don't plug in your destination? Who knows where you're going, right? No, you don't know where you're going. You're going to wind up in circles. Your wife is going to yell at you because you're lost again. And so that's what happens to business owners. They don't plan to fail. They fail a plan. So business owners don't have a destination. So they're driving up and down the financial hills, driving around in circles, ending up exiting four, closing their business. I just talked to a gentleman and said he closed his business. He had a very good business. I said, why did you close? He said, I couldn't take it anymore. And so- you really got to treat your business as the most valuable asset. So pick a number. So let's say you want to sell for $20 million. Boom, there's a number. Now, what do you need to know? What does the GPS need to know now? It needs to know where you're starting right. from. Yeah. And in other words, what is your current evaluation? And most business owners, Corey, and you probably know this because you do a lot of MA work, they don't even know what their business is for. They, I talked to a guy the other day, been in business 60 years, never ever had his business evaluated. And that's financial suicide. I mean, Corey, we go to the doctor once a year to get an annual physical checkup to make sure our heart's still ticking and we're still kicking. We take a car to the mechanic to get an annual tune-up, but then we don't take our most valuable possession, which is our business, and get an annual valuation checkup. And this should be done by M&A experts, not by CPAs. Because I love my CPAs, don't get mad at me, but CPAs don't really value the synergies. They're not valuating the contracts and the databases and the patents and the trademarks and the branding. They're not valuating any of that. So let's say you want to sell for 20 million or more 5 million. Next thing you need to know is who your buyer is going to be. Your business is your widget. Let me say that again. Your business is your widget. So when you go into business, you're like, okay, you're, you're a lawyer. You're like, okay, here's my widget. I'm a lawyer. I'm going I'm to specialize in M&A. Who's my targeted clients? I don't want to be everything to everybody. So I'm going to really pinpoint who my targeted clients are. And everything that comes out of my law office is going to be directed to those targeted clients, right? Yep. So your business is your widget. So you need to decide who are my buyers going to be. There's five types of buyers. Buyers sellers call me all the time and they go, Michelle, just represent me with this one buyer. This buyer's going to buy my business. I'm like, don't you ever pull all of your eggs in one buyer's basket, number one. Number two, how can we maximize value and create a bidding war with a party of one? <laughs> and what happens if that buyer backs up? You have no backup buyers. So there's five types of buyers. I'm going to run through them really quickly. 98%, 95 to 98% of buyers are first-time buyers. They buy the pizzerias and the coffee shops and the ice cream stores. They're not buying $20 million businesses. Turn around specialists are buying distressed assets that they can buy and leverage the assets so that business will typically no money down. And then private equity groups buy based on platform and based on um, add-ons. So if they want to get in the legal industry, they're going to look for a law firm that has at least three to $7 million in EBITDA for a platform. If they already have a platform in the legal space, then they'll look at add-ons under $1 million in EBITDA. Number four is competitors slash strategics. Competitors slash strategics are your best buyer, especially strategics, because they're not just focused on EBITDA. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. They're focused on synergies. They're focused on those synergies of proprietary assets that will catapult their current business to the next level. 
I had a, a buyer pay 165% more than the appraised price of a business for 70% of the company because he wanted the BP contract because yeah. they had similar products. He'd been trying to get into British Petroleum forever. Couldn't get his foot in the door. He's like, I got my foot in the door now if I buy this company. <laughs> right. And that was valuable to them way beyond, you know, a, yeah. a typical even a multiple for another company. So we really got to evaluate those synergies. And then the last type of buyer, I call them storm chasers, Corey, because these are sophisticated entrepreneurs that are industry agnostic and what they really care about is EBITDA. So they chase EBITDA. So those are the five types of buyers. Now that you got your plan, 20 million, right? You were 5 million. Oh, time frame. Let's say you want to do this in five years. We skipped over time frame. You got to have time frame. And then you decide, okay, my buyers are able to pegs. Uh, strategics or sophisticated entrepreneurs. Now you got to reverse engineer your plan and say, okay, where are my numbers need to be? <laughs> you know, if I want to sell for 20 million, where's my gross? Where's my comps? Gross profit? Most importantly, EBITDA, where does that need to be? And, you know, if you want to sell for $20 million, you need to have an EBITDA between three to five million, depending upon, or four to five million, you know, four to six million, depending upon those synergies and depending upon the industry. And then you got to ask yourself, what are the characteristics, what are the synergies the buyers are willing to pay top dollar for and outbid everybody else? And that's your GPS exit model. Then you got to build your business with those synergies, with those characteristics on what we call the six Ps. Yeah, so that's, that, that's you know, so we get that. But I love, I love this concept of, okay, where are we? Where do we want to go? Let's quantify that. Let's talk about who will pay for that. Let's talk about how we get, you know, the numbers there. But right, what's going through, I mean, for for certainly for for sellers or people who may be in that position where they are working in their business and maybe, you know, maybe they developed a very nice business, but we know that business is probably not saleable as it is. Then they say, okay, great, Michelle, I, I get that in concept, right? But how do I really make my business move from five, five million to $20 million valuation? I get that I need to go there. I get, you know, who the potential buyers are going to be. I get it conceptually, but what do I practically do to get there? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I actually partnered with a company in Texas. And I said, look, I'm not going to partner with you and I'm not going to invest money in your company unless we can sell for 15 and 20 million. I go, I don't see how we can ever get there, Michelle. <laughs> we're under a million dollars in revenue. I said, we're going to get there because we're going to build an infrastructure. We're going to build a business. You're going to get, we're going to do away with this turnover. You have so much turnover that you can never get ahead because you're always training new people. And we're going to go through the six Bs and we're going to build your infrastructure on the six Bs. And then we're going to think outside the box and we're going to ask ourselves, what business are we in? What business, what's our superpowers and what business should we be in? So I'll give you some examples. Um, and I'll, I'll do the examples while I'm going through the six Bs if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. Let's do that. Okay. So number one is people. The number one reason that, well, I said, you know, there's, there's several reasons why businesses don't sell. Number one is because business owners don't plan their exit. They think other business as their baby. And I'm here to tell you, your business is not your baby. It's your most valuable asset. Your babies are at home. Go home, hug them, let them kiss them. Treat your business like an asset. But business owners are working in their business. The business is a thousand percent dependent upon them. You take the business out, you take the owner out of the business, there is no more business. Yep. And that's what happened with this company that I partner with in Texas. It was husband, wife, and one employee. They told the one employee they were going to sell or close. The one employee went and got a different job. <laughs> and then I had another lady call me from Dallas. She said, my, my husband dropped dead from a heart attack at the age of 40. Oh, 
Uh, yeah, as a business, he left me with a mountain of debt. I know nothing about the finances of the business. Can you sell it? So I started asking questions. He had a construction company, no employees, only 1099s, no processes in place, no policy procedure manuals. The data was all in his head. He had a glorified job. A lot of entrepreneurs go out there and create a glorified job versus a business. Yes. And, and so he had a glorified job. So when he died, the business died. There was nothing to sell. I felt so sorry for her. I'll give you one more example. Dentists in Florida, been in business for 50 years. Three dental hygienists, no other dentists. The three dental hygienists were his daughters. And I said, look, I can sell your business, but we can't maximize value because you and your daughters are the business. And there's going to be contingency language in there that you and your daughters have to stay on for two to three years. He goes, well, honey, we're not staying. I said, well, then honey, you're not selling. So number one is people. You don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. And this is most entrepreneurs' number one struggle because entrepreneurs are like, well, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. You know, um, yeah, entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah, entrepreneurs controlling instinct and that uh, inability to delegate that some of them have really kills them. Yeah, because entrepreneurs are control freaks, but entrepreneurs have to learn. You got to you got to focus on your strengths and hire your weaknesses. You're going to hire people who are smarter than you. You know, even if you look at Donald Trump, love him or hate him, I don't care. But he had George Ross, who was an attorney. Without George Ross, most of his deals would never come to fruition because Don was a visionary. George Ross was the integrator. And George Ross made everything legal. You know, so you're always going to hire somebody smarter than you and you're going to hire your weaknesses. And I always tell my clients, you're never going to grow unless you let go of the control. Right. So, so that's, that's, the, that's the first thing. What's the second thing? Second P is, is product. So this is where we'll get into really innovation and how you can go from 5 million to 29, okay? So product is your industry, your service, your product. You're in the legal industry. I'm in the MA industry. You got to look at your industry and say, is it is it dying or thriving? Legal's not going anywhere anytime soon. Do you have an Amazon or do you have a Blockbuster? Yeah. If you have an Amazon, that's when you sell. <laughs> you sell when you're in your prime. No pun intended, but you sell when you're in your prime. So many business owners want to sell when they're a blockbuster, and they wonder why they don't get their price that they want. So product is your service industry. And so here's here's a story. So when I started working with this company, you know, I started looking at it, and I asked ourselves, you know, what business are we in? They're saying, we're in the install business. We install graphics on first responders. What are our superpowers? Our superpowers are we're the best at art, quality art. We can print these graphics like a paint by number and do a blind challenge where anybody can put them on. Then I asked what business should we be in? And we all thought about it and we said, we should get out of the installed market because that's where all the problems are. Because now you've got a bunch of employees that have to stick the graphics to typically screw it up. <laughs> so it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an ongoing nightmare. But if we got out of the installed into the um, uninstalled and we started selling them to all the upfitters and everybody else that exists, guess what? We charge reoccurring subscription model. We charge training fees. We send the graphics. Now we've reduced our overhead because we don't need the installers. We've created a residual model. And the model that I've created will get us to $15, $20 million price tag. Love it. So that's one way to think. It's kind of like Amazon back in the 1980s. 
They said, what business are we in? They said, we're a book fulfillment business. What's our superpower? Our superpower is fulfillment. What business should we be in? Oh, we shouldn't just be in book fulfillment. We should be fulfilling products for everybody around the world. Right. Okay, so people have to start thinking differently. And a lot of times it takes an outsider's perspective because it's hard to read the label from the inside of the bottle. Yeah. In the outsider's perspective, they read the warning signs. They keep out of danger zone. Number three is processes. You're not going to get anywhere without processes. You can have all the great people in the world. You got the right people in the right seat. You can ask the who question, who opens the door, who ends legal, accounting, banking, quality control. But unless you have the processes to help manage the people <laughs> and streamline and be more efficient, more productive, and be more cost effective, you're never going to be able to scale. And that's typically the people and processes are two big areas that most businesses fall short in. Yeah, so, sometimes it's the people, at least the initial, that resist the processes, right? <laughs> yeah, and then and well, and then here's the other problem too. When business owners design processes, Corey, guess what they're looking at and thinking about? They're thinking about themselves. Yep. They want to design the processes that will be convenient for their lifestyle. Look at doctors. When are they open? Monday through, Monday through Thursday, from yep. 9 to 4, close on Friday. You know, my husband and I own medical clinics. So McDonald's did this. If you haven't watched if you haven't watched this movie, you should go watch this movie. It's called The Founder, based yep. upon the McDonald's other stories. One of the best movies of all time. But McDonald's back in 1940 said, look, we're going to design a fast food restaurant, fast food processes, systems around the customer experience. Yep. Imagine that. Imagine designing something around your customer experience. And they said, well, we want a customer's experience. Great tasting food that's hot fast and, and, five, and what was it, 30 seconds or less. Because they did that, you can eat at McDonald's anywhere in the world and pretty much still get the same process. And so you got to go back and ask your clients. My husband and I did this with our medical clinics. We asked ourselves, you know, what do our customers want to experience? And we asked our client. We, had a, we asked our patients. And they said, well, we really need flexible hours. We need evening hours. We need Saturday hours. So guess what we did? We're open until 7.30, three nights a week. Yep. And we'll open a half day on, on um, Saturday. We'll open until 2 o'clock on Saturday. Wow, what a novel idea. And then we gained so much market share because nobody else is doing that. So go back to your client base and ask them, what, what do you want to experience when you do business with us? Because if you don't, gain, if you don't create wow experience in this competitive market, especially in this economy, you're going to lose market share. You're going to end up going out of business. You should have, and you know this as a lawyer, the buyers are going to walk in. They're going to look at your policy and procedure manuals. They're going to look at your SOP checklist. They're going to look at those employee handbooks. They're going to want to make sure a lot of type businesses that you have management team in place are not competes. You know, these, all these documents are, are really, really, really important in the development space. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you don't have them, the buyer starts, starts discounting. <laughs> No, they definitely, they start, there's one of two things that happens, right? They either start discounting or even worse, they get more and more nervous because you don't have in place what they would hope you have in place and, you know, can even blow the deal. I mean, you know, if you get, you know, beyond the discount, right? You know, if you don't have certain key things in place. So no question about that. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com assessment. 
That's CoreyCupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. What's the next page? Proprietary. So let me give you a quick crash course on evaluations. So quick crash course. If you have a business under a million dollars in EBITDA, you're probably going to trade for anywhere from one and a half to maybe three, three and a half if it's really good. Maybe four, but probably not. Just really depending upon your industry and those proprietary assets. But when you get your EBITDA to over a million, and that's the sweet spot, that's what you want to get to, to over a million, then your values change dramatically, your multiples change. So you start at five, five and a half, six, seven, eight, you know, again, depending upon those proprietary assets. So the proprietary assets really bring value because remember what I said earlier, strategics, private equity groups that already have a platform, they will pay more for certain synergies that can help them cut costs in their current company, help them gain a contract or help them get more market share or help them open up in a new location that they've been wanting to go into. So proprietary, I'll run through it really quickly. The last two keys are quick. But um, number one is branding. The more well-branded you are, the more I can sell your company for. You know, the biggest brand in the world is the most valuable brand in the world, you know? Um, no, what, what is it? I've thought a couple. Apple. Apple. <laughs> Apple is worth $289 billion with a B. And that's just for their brand, Corey. That doesn't include their inventory assets, real estate, cash flow, or anything else. Right. Now, nobody's right. paying anything for Blockbuster or Toys R Us. So branding is huge. you got to build your brand. Trademarks. Here's the biggest mistake. And you probably know this, Corey. Yep. Uh, the biggest mistake is, is business owners will think of a name. They go to GoDaddy and they're like, yes, I got the .com. So excited. Then they go to their state, California, New York, Texas, wherever. And they get a state trademark, but they never check that federal database. They never hire an attorney to check it for them. And they're yes. practicing. And all of a sudden, they get really upset and angry when they receive a cease and desist letter. Yep. And now I'll say, you can't use that company name anymore. So you need to hire an attorney. It's not that expensive. You know, $1,000 to $1,500 is what I typically pay. I trademark everything. And get that federal trademark. You've got to protect your brand. Because remember, branding will bring you a much higher multiple. So you've got to get those special frameworks. Even on products too, Corey. You know, we have a client that has exclusive products and each one is for a different retail store. You know, yep. one's a TJ Maxx, one's a Walmart. And so hugely important. Patents are important. I mean, if you watch Shark Tank, they sound like a broken record. Do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent pending? So patents are huge. And then also contracts. You know, any type of vendor contracts, any type of exclusive distribution contracts, Manufacturing, franchise war, most important contracts to buyers are those client contracts. Because, and, and especially if you have a residual model where you have, mail, I call it mailbox money, you know, buyers will pay more, a higher multiple for that. But here's a mistake the business owners make. Now, I don't know if you see this story, but most business owners never have that transfer clause in their contract. Yeah, the assignability. Yeah, assignability, transferability, they don't have it. They yep. tell you you do. They all tell me, yes, Rashad, I have it, I have it, I have it. I look at the contract, they do not have it. So here's the problem. 98% of all sales are asset sales. Yep. And if the buyer refuses to do a stock sale, and many of them will for a multitude of reasons, then you're going to have to go to your clients and get a, a transfer uh, to consent, a, a consent to transfer. And yep. 
If you got, I got a client right now that's got 2,000 clients in subscription model. None of his contractors has a real Yep. So what you going to do? You're going to go to 2,000 clients and get yep. them a password. Now your customers know you're selling your business. So if it doesn't go through, the cat's out of the back. So I can't it's a big, it's a big issue, and and even the equity deal, uh, you know, the stock deal workaround doesn't always work because sometimes you need consent for change of control, even even if it's not a technically an assignment because the company's being sold. So if you don't deal with this issue up front, you got a big problem. You're right on, Michelle. Yeah, and it's it's a simple two sentence clause that you need to just add in your contracts, and um, that was a big problem with that BP deal I told you. It wasn't transferable. The buyer took a huge risk and went ahead and bought the company anyway. And luckily, it all worked out. But I was selling that huge transportation company in Kansas City. And I've been telling them for years, get your contract transferable. Oh, Michelle, we did, we did, we did. I'll bring a buyer. We're ready to close. Who wants to do an asset sale? And then all like, oh, oh, we didn't do that. I said, so you lied to me? <laughs> so anyway, that was another big mess we had to deal with. So I can't stress this enough. And you probably can, you know, Corey. It's so important. And they always fall apart because of this every day. And then the other thing is databases. Databases are extremely valuable. Yeah. Facebook paid 19 billion for WhatsApp, and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money, not just losing every energy. But Facebook, had, but guess what? WhatsApp had a billion users. And Facebook knew they could monetize, they could all lie because of the billion users. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about are synergies. You know, content, cre- any type of content creation, any type of celebrity endorsements, radio personalities. We got a client that has Oprah that, that endorses their products. But Jesus will pay a lot more money for that because they want to get their products in front of the queen of everything. And one more thing I want to say about IP, hold your IP in a separate corporation. Yes. Do not hold it in the same corporation. Also, if you hire 1099s, if you hire interns, if you work with E5, Fiverr or Odesk or Elance or any of those companies, get them to sign a contract, an agreement that states you own the content. Because right now, the courts are full of 1099s or interns suing the employer because they're like, oh, wait a minute, that's my work. That's my press release. That's my blog. And you're making money off of it, so I'm not paid. (laughs) Yeah, you want to work for, they call it a work for hire clause or an assignment of inventions or whatever you call it. But basically, yes, what it says is, hey, we're hiring you to produce something for us. We own all the IP on it. You don't own anything. Now, if they're an employee, you don't have to do that because they work for you. So everything they produce is yours. But if you're a 1099 or like I said, any of these Elance, Free contractors, you got to get that signed. Yeah, and we we even build it into our employment agreements only because yes, the default is for employees that 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 it's assumed it's the employer, but there are exceptions. If the employee has done it not on employment time and it's not directly related to the business, and there are, so there are ways that they could even argue that it was outside the scope of the employee employment relationship. So we we actually believe in having these kind of provisions in employment uh, agreements as well. But it's oh. way more important, way more important for contractors. And That's a good so point to just go ahead and be proactive and yeah. include that in your employee agreement. I mean, it's always better to be proactive than reactive. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And then the fifth one is patrons. Patrons is your customer database. I mean, your customer base. And most business owners follow the 80-20 rule. But 80% of their business comes from 20% of their clients. If you lose a few clients, you're in big trouble. You know, that deal I told you about where we sold it for 165% more, that business 
has 65% of their revenue is tied up in VP. Contract was not transferable. And I bought about 300, 350 buyers to the table. We had several LOIs, but they all had clawback language around clauses, you know, all the stuff to mitigate their risk, which is understandable. It was only when we found a certain strategic said, oh, I'll pay a lot of money to get a VP because he knew he would make a lot of money once he got right. a VP. And then profit, so you want customer diversification, not customer concentration. Plus, I don't know if you see this, Corey, but I'm seeing this a lot. A business owner has been in business 30, 40 years. Their customers are aging out. Yeah. They got to innovate. I mean, the name of the game, the reason why so many businesses are going out of business is because of lack of name. Name is always innovate and market. Business owners stop innovating, they become complacent. The last P is profits. It's the reason entrepreneurs go into business. They go into business to make more money and have more financial freedom and have more quality of time, which a lot of them don't have any of that. So I always say lack of profits is not your problem. Lack of profits is not the problem. Lack of profits is a symptom of not having the right people in place, being in a dying industry, not a thriving industry, not having your processes all buttoned up, designed with the customer experience in mind, not protecting proprietary assets and hiring people like Corey to fight in court <laughs> and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect your assets because you didn't know you didn't do what you needed to do in the beginning. It's also about patrons. I mean, if you lose a couple of clients. You're in big trouble. You're practically out of business. I, I saw we're working with a media company that we're selling, and they have five clients only because they cater to casinos. During the time, they lost two out of the five. Yeah, concentration risk. That's gonna, yeah, that's gonna bring down your valuation. So that's six piece. And a company I partnered with in Texas, they had no people, they had a great product. As zero processes, they were shoving invoices in the cabinet and I was collecting. And then they had a little bit of proprietary, not much. They had great customer base, they had customer diversification, and they were making money. So they were operating three out of the six. And listen, folks, on that last one, you know, despite the fact that there are exceptions and some of the deals you hear about, especially in tech and whatever, you know, get sold at big valuations uh, without profits, like you know, you talked about. Yeah, that. you know, I meant that, to say that. That is such a, I think that gives people who don't know such a misimpression because the average deal is not that deal, right? The average deal is not that tech. Those um, are unicorns. Yeah, unicorn, right? That, that's Those are not unicorns, like, yeah. That's a very specific type of deal. And, you know, 98% of the businesses out there, 99.8% of the businesses out there are not going to be in that position. And very few of those businesses, except, you know, there are, listen, I've done some deals. I mean, I've got, I've got a client now who, you know, he sold his second business, right? You know, back right before the tech, uh, uh, the, you know, bubble burst in 2001, you know, the original internet bubble, um, you know, did have a, and we're talking small scale company that did sell because they, they had been the first online with certain information for real estate agents around schools and stuff like that. So there are exceptions that, that are not unicorns, but it's still such a small percentage of the market that you know you, you you can't assume in most of your businesses that you're going to be able to sell for any money if you don't if you're not showing profit. Yeah, you got to show profit. I mean, you absolutely have to have EBITDA. I mean, like I talked about Facebook buying WhatsApp, they had no money; they were hemorrhaging, but they had a billion users. Right. You know? And and one thing I meant to say that I forgot to say: most businesses are evaluated at a multiple of EBITDA, yes. except for SaaS. SaaS is a multiple of revenue. Now, SaaS doesn't have to have any EBITDA. They're looking for users, eyeballs, and whatever, and they know they're going to monetize and, and leverage later, and that you know that model's been, been proven out. But that's that's only some of the, you know 
when we're doing these evaluations, Corey, there's so many things to look at, like e-commerce businesses. We had an e-commerce business that wanted to sell. 99% of all their clients come from Amazon. Mm. What happens if something happens with Amazon? They're out of business. That's we have right. another client that, that manufactures. I'm not going to get into what they manufacture because I don't want to give it away. But they were in Costco. They had an exclusive agreement with Costco that was about 90% of their business when the pandemic happened. Costco said, nobody's shopping for this anymore. We're taking it out. Guess what? They practically went out of business. Yeah. So it's not just about customer relationships. It's also about, you know, those vendors, those marketing relationships, where you're getting the leads from. And you've got to be diversified. You know, that's one thing about products. You have to have multiple revenue streams because if you look at the restaurant industry, the reason why it takes such a nosedive in the pandemic is because they have one way to get paid. Where's that's their right. e-commerce business? Where's their private label you know, uh, specialty food items and whole foods or something. You know, they need multiple revenue streams. If you don't have re- multiple revenue streams, your business is going to die. I mean, I have like five different revenue streams in my business. Same thing, like you need different marketing channels, marketing channels. You don't put all your eggs in the Amazon basket because Amazon's been known to get rid of vendors. That's right. I mean, people have had the same experience with the Walmarts of the world, et cetera. You know, the same exact thing, right? And listen, it's tough. You know, when you get an opportunity with one of these big companies to get high volume, right, it's tough to turn it down. And I'm not saying you should turn it down, but what it makes you do, and I preach this to my clients all the time, is you have to then spend extra effort on building up alternative revenue sources, right, so that this thing doesn't dominate it. And the challenge, of course, of that is in the small business is that you're usually overwhelmed by that big one customer and trying to satisfy and service them, which is why people in processes, right, become crucial. So, you know, just tie it all together. All right, so listen, we can talk for hours, days, yes, right, weeks, okay, um, with how much you and I love M&A and all the wisdom that you have and the deals that you've done. But obviously, we're on a podcast here. We're going to run out of time, and, and you know, we're a little over what we usually do. But I want to do some extra time with you because you bring so much. I do want to ask you one more question before I go to my final two. And I know this is a big question that we're not going to have only, you know, only a few minutes to cover. But just, you know, we're in an interesting time now. We're recording this mid, mid-June. The episode is going to air late August of 2022, um, you know, we've gone from a place where I've told people there's no good deal, they can, can't get funded in this market for the last couple of years because there's all kinds of money out there. Um, you know, obviously the stock market was strong, employment was strong. Now we've got, you know, inflation going, you know, up. We've got concerns. Uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of my show, you know, there uh, people, people are having concerns. They're starting to, you know, pull back. And of course, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not saying we're going to have a recession, but obviously things are not there are things on the horizon that are at least concerning people. Um, how are you seeing that? I, I'll say up front, I've been interested to see so far on my deals, the deals are still going through. I've had a couple of deals where there's been some tweaks, not actually on valuation, surprisingly yet, at least for me, and I'd love to hear what you're saying, but on deal terms where they pulled a little less money up front and put it on the back end on the earnout just to, to hedge. Um, mm-hmm. What are you seeing in terms of, Deal volume, valuations, deal terms, you know, in this early stages of, of the market may be becoming a little more questionable. So we see deals are still going through right now, but we also see panic. Yeah. So meaning I'll give you an example. It's not an agriculture company in 55 million. And it, we've been under due diligence since last October. <laughs> not because of the buyer, because of the sellers. Yep. And the buyer is panicking now. He's like, listen. Every day that you drag this out, you're costing me money. So buyers are really, really, really um, getting nervous, you know, tightening up their their purse strings. 
um, really worried about the cost of money because the cost of money is so much higher than it has been in the past. So you're going to see more buyers. I mean, we've had so many, there's been so many buyers in 2021. 2020 was dead. <laughs> in 2021, there were so many buyers in the MA because there was so much money available. Yep. Now the money is tightening up, the interest rates are, are, are going to be much higher. And it's going to cost, when you're talking about big deals like 50, 100 million, quarter, you know, 250 million, oh my gosh, it's going to cost them so much money. So they're panicky. I mean, I'm starting to see panic um, on the buy side. And they're pressuring the sellers to hurry up, and we pressure the sellers to hurry up. But again, you get back to a situation where sellers are working in their business. And like this agriculture company doesn't have a CFO, which is a big mistake. You don't run those type of companies without a CFO in place. So that's number one. Um, that's been pretty big. Evaluations. I mean, I've seen more earnout structures than I've ever seen in my entire 20 years of being in this industry. And I, I really kind of talk my sellers out of earnout. You might have a different philosophy. Usually, I like to use our analysis to bridge a gap on evaluation or if, if, if 2021 was a great year and it could be an anomaly, you know, I like to use or not them. But I, I want I want to have some type of guarantee in that or not. I'll give you an example. If someone in an app company and they're putting so much down and they want to finance $2 million. No, not, you know what? That's a different company. My God, I got $2 million companies. Okay, let me go back. Furniture manufacturing, this company. <laughs> this company... They are giving stock to the seller in their current company, which the current company is a NUCO. I would advise heavily against doing that. Then they want to do an earnout of two million or more based upon gross profit margin. So I would always do a gross gross revenues or gross profit and on EBITDA, of course. And they didn't want to guarantee any of that. So I went back and said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. You're going to guarantee that. You look at his gross profit, you do the 15%. That's $300,000 a year. You're going to guarantee $300,000 a year. We're going to secure that by personal guarantee. Of course, they said, we're not signing a personal guarantee. Fine, give me a corporate guarantee. I want a stock pledge in the company. I want a lien on all of the assets. I want a lien on the company name. You know, and I start putting all these securities in to protect them. So, because most sellers will never see their earnout. I don't know if you've had different experience than I have, Corey. But a lot of these are now sort of a company fruition because sellers find a reason not to pay. I mean, buyers find a reason not to pay. Yeah, and I think I think that's it's, it's more true in certain industries. One, I do a lot in financial services, and uh, especially with the investment advisor community. And because there's so much incentives for them not to have a lawsuit or a financial issue because of what they do, those earnouts tend to get paid. But in other industries, a lot less so. So, um, you know, we do tech deals. We do a lot of other deals. And yeah, so really, it depends upon industry, but that's a risk. And, and you're right. I mean, and listen, and back-end money in general is more risky than, you know, so obviously buyers want more upfront. But especially we're in an interesting time now where the market is at a very high level. And there are signs that maybe things are going to get shaky. So, you know, what I'm saying- big signs that things are getting shaky. Yeah, well, they're getting shaky, Exactly. <laughs> You know, and and listen, I think you and I would uh, sometimes advise, I'm guessing, I know I would, uh, you know, a buyer to take even a little less if they're going to get more of it guaranteed or upfront, right? Because, you know, because you don't do. take that risk off the table, right? You know, it's it's worth leaving a few bucks on the table uh, to take that risk off the table. Um, you know, but right now, sometimes the buyers are trying to hold to that, those very high valuations. I mean, the sellers and the, and the buyers understandably say, hey, I can't, you know, I'll do that if you hit certain numbers. So, 
And that I think is fine. But when they're trying to come in and get a company below evaluation, give them stock in their company, which is a new company that has no assets whatsoever, and come to the table with no money down, yeah. not different. a good deal. Much of the last things I always say to my, uh, to, my, you know, to my sellers on that is, listen, the way if they're offering you equity in their company, right, this is the way you need to evaluate it. You need to evaluate it as if you got that all in cash, right, on your side, and then we're asked to make an investment back, whatever that value you're getting, yeah. right? Would you make that investment? If the answer is no, you would not make that investment in that equity by writing a check, then why are you taking that as part of your... <laughs> And you really got to do research. I mean, nobody should take equity in a new co- in a new company. <laughs> they set up a new corporation, and they want you to take equity in that new corporation. Yeah, no, uh, it, yeah, almost never. Now, I mean, there's occasionally like uh, uh, super experienced management teams who are doing roll ups, and they've done it before, and you know that new company is going to be where well, you know. But yes, generally not the case. Okay, like mm-hmm. I said, we can talk forever, but we're not going to. Um, so let's bring this to a close. Before I ask you my final question. Um, where can people, because listen, obviously people who listen to this are going to know that you're a wealth of information. Um, and you know, what's great is people are really ready to sell. You can go help them do that, but if they're not ready to sell, you also have, like you said, diversification of what you offer, right? Uh, you know, you could also help them get there. Um, so where do they go to find out more about all the offerings you have and, you know, getting your books and signing up for your programs or hiring you as a, you know, as a sell the company, whatever it is. So first of all, they can get Exit Rich at any Hudson bookstore in the United States. You can get at Barnes & Noble, your favorite bookstores, Amazon, of course, you know, wherever you buy your, your favorite print books. The audio version just came out May 1st, so we're so excited to have the audio version because entrepreneurs are too busy to read. So we came out with the, the, the audio version, and you can get that at Apple, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon as well. So I suggest you do that first and foremost. You can go to... Um, STI, Seller Talk Incorporated, just STI at 360.com. And all of my information is there. All my contact information is there, phone numbers, um, email addresses, websites, et cetera. And that's STI at 360.com. And then reach out to me. I love helping entrepreneurs. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Um, Michelle, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, my highest value, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression to the reason why I haven't had a boss in you know in, in over three in three and a half decades. Um, what what does freedom mean to you, and how does it impact your life and business? So freedom means to me. So <laughs> remember, I said I would never get a job. I got that job at Xerox, and I didn't have any freedom. <laughs> but freedom means to me, you know, make your own choices, make your own decisions, grow your your empire really give back to the community, you know, figure out what your mission is, what your objective is, why you're here on this planet, what do you want on your tombstone, and really give back to the community. And and freedom for me is really freeing business owners from their business because you should not be a slave to your business. You should not be working in your business. Your business should be working for you. And that's what freedom really means to me because we go into business to have financial freedom to have a better quality of life take vacations, to not mess our, our kids' soccer games and baseball games and gymnastics and plays. And guess what happens? It's the opposite. <laughs> we go into business and then they're not making any money. They have, I got one client says he hasn't taken a vacation in nine years. He messed all of his kids' events. That's not freedom. So what freedom is to me is to free up these business owners 
so they can really learn how to work on their business, not in it, so their business works for them, not them working for them. Love it. Michelle, thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.